I want to read the whole section of 1 through 18 this morning. So hopefully we can see how all these things tie together. So starting in verse 1, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but, became, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we need to see you made known through the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. May we see his glory as we hear your word, as we submit to what it teaches, including the one who preaches and teaches. Would you work in all of our hearts to conform us to the image of this one, this pure, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? In Jesus' name, amen. I called this large print edition, the title of the sermon. I thought about large print. And my eyes are always happier when they see large print. Uh, I don't know about you. Uh, and so I thought I'd look up some, some of those jokes, you know, uh, like Jeff Foxworthy, if you might be a redneck if jokes. Instead, you might be getting older if. And I had a bunch of them, but I had to take a bunch of them out because I'm not really here to be a comedian. But anyway, so here are four of them. You might be getting older if your hair growth has moved from your scalp to your ears. You might be getting older if you find work a lot of fun and fun a lot of work. You might be getting older if you lie about your age because you forgot what it was. 
You might be getting older if you happily wait for the large print edition of the best-selling novel that everybody's raving about. Now, a large print edition of a book is a very special thing. Not every book gets to be in a large print edition. And so it means that the book meant something to people. It might not always be good, but it had impact. And what is, what's happening here is it's the same thing, only magnified, quite literally. And we have another saying in literature, maybe it was more common at one time, but you've probably heard this. When you want to say something's the same, but only magnified or made more obvious, you use the phrase writ large. For instance, in this sentence, Hollywood is American society writ large. Like it or not. It's the microscope that puts it up on the big screen on what the real values of our culture is. Well, the word made flesh is the Trinitarian society writ large. The large print edition. And I hope that helps us to see the main idea of the sermon today, which is that the word God, the son reigns in our hearts by letting us see his glory. And thereby the word owns us by clearly showing his glory that only we as his own can see. So how does the word conquer the darkness of our hearts so that we can see him? Well, he does this by shedding light on his hidden grace, his giving grace, and his teaching grace. This is how the word owns us. By shedding light on his hidden grace, verses 14 and 15. Why is it hidden? Well, first, he came as an uncelebrated, he came to us in an uncelebrated way. And he also came to us in a humble way. Uncelebrated in regard to us, humble in regard to himself, inside himself. First, in an uncelebrated way, at least at the time. We celebrate Christmas all over the world now, maybe forgetting what it's really what, what it's about. But he came as a man. The word became flesh, became. It's a transition word. God the Son is transitioning from a purely spiritual being as God the Son to keeping that same spiritual being, but also putting it together, wrapping it up in a physical human being as one person that he now exists that way forever. And we must never lose sight that Jesus, the Word made flesh, is God the Son. And it's not natural to have this kind of insight into this. We need it to be revealed to us. Why? Because if you were there in Bethlehem and you went to that inn and you went back out to the stables and you saw a mother and a father and a bunch of animals and a little baby in a manger, there would be nothing special to you about that other than now, if you like babies, you wouldn't look at Jesus and go, oh, there's God. It's hidden 
grace. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us. And this is what makes the transition word became so necessary. Because we had never known God otherwise. God has to tell us about God. And so he dwelt among us. Now, this word dwelt could be literally translated. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's the same Greek word that refers to that Old Testament tent where the worship of God took place as the Jews wandered around in the desert being punished for what they did with the golden calf for 40 years. And it had to be mobile. They had to be able to set it up, take it down, move on. Whenever the pillar of cloud by day led them or the pillar of fire by night led them, they had to be able to pick up and go. And it's, it's appropriate that Jesus is tabernacled among us because those Jews never quite got to the promised land. And we live here in this present evil age still. We're a pilgrim people. So God is moving into a neighborhood of people who are constantly moving because he's moving them. And the tabernacle transitions to the temple once they get settled in the promised land after many years, as Solomon builds it. So the temple, therefore, is the tabernacle writ large. It is the presence of God with his people. Get to know your new neighbor, God. God came near. Now think about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the temple writ large. Everything that the temple was, everything that the tabernacle was, Jesus is. There is no more need for a temple. The temple, the fulfillment of the temple has come. And so he gives us eyes of faith to see this because we have to go through a transition from a soul that hates him to a soul that loves him. And we will love him when we see him as he actually is. And that's why he came to us as a man in an uncelebrated way and why his glory had no halo. You had to experience him to see his glory. So he came to us in an uncelebrated way and he came to us in a humble way as his grace is hidden from us in these ways. Not ultimately hidden like a mystery, just not so obvious. When I say humble, this is what I mean. Look at verse 15. He allowed a man to, in, to announce his true identity. There's no fanfare with Jesus. Just words from the mouth of one man to another. He let John talk about him. And I'll tell you what, that gives me all kinds of reason to believe that this is true. Because if I had that kind of power, you think I would put up with people not properly addressing me? You think I would trust a changeable, fallen, sinful human being, a mere man with the responsibility to tell the truth about me? It's way more persuasive this way 
Now I'll tell you, Jesus is not up there helplessly leaving it in the hands of John. Because he can make sure that the means and the ends work together. That as John proclaims, the outcomes that he ordains and wants will come about. Now, I don't know if you caught this in the passage we read in our responsive reading. It's not on your scripture sheet this morning. Um, Scripture sheets are in the bulletin if you haven't found it yet. There's not a lot less of them today. But in that psalm this morning, verses 19 and 20 of Psalm 77, listen to what it says. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, referring back to the Red Sea event. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, two sinful men. His footprints were unseen. So God has a way of working mysterious, and this is true mystery. We can't crack this code. We just know that it happens. But we're also making conscious choices for which we are responsible. And that's how Jesus works it. His hidden grace. And so his gentle approach to us in his hidden grace and glory is that he comes wrapped up in a baby without a halo. You know, like those old medieval paintings. And this emphasizes our need of him. We have to get near him. And he makes sure that we do if we're his. We may not be consciously aware of it, but he does. Because we got to remember our sin turned our hearts to darkness. And so we naturally resist him. And so if he didn't hide his glory, in other words, Jesus didn't take John and take him by the ear and say, now, John, I want you here. I want you standing here. I want you saying this. No, John made the choice. He chose the words. He chose where he was going to stand. He chose who he spoke to. But still Jesus worked it all out. So how else would we discover it if he came in full-on glory to us? We would die. That's how gentle he is. We need to see his grace and his glory writ large in him because he's the one who turns the light on, on his hidden grace for us, by which he gives us the space to see him, by which he gives us the ability to see him. And so he sheds his light on his hidden grace, which then in turn sheds light on his giving grace. The word conquers the darkness of our hearts by shedding light on his giving grace. How does he give to us? He gives to us out of what John, uh, John, the gospel writer, the apostle John, wrote about John the baptizer in verse 15, um, verse 16. I'm sorry, following John the baptizer, verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received. What does that word fullness mean? Well, look at your scripture sheets. The first scripture there, first two actually. It's a small little thin sheet in your bulletin if you don't know where it is. If you don't have it, just try to look on with someone else or raise your hand maybe. 
There was only one bulletin that didn't get one, I know. So, for in him, Colossians 1.19, all the fullness of God, there's that word fullness, was pleased to dwell. God was pleased to dwell fully in Jesus. Pleased to reveal himself to us in this most concrete of ways. Even more clearly, Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness, Paul doesn't want you to miss this. How much more fullness can you get than whole fullness? The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You can't get any more descriptive of the incarnation than that. And so because he is, has this fullness as God the Son, out of his deity, he comes and he gives to us, not like the way we give, not like the way we interact. He can be calm and patient. Now, I want to illustrate this by way of contrast, using myself as the contrast with Jesus, which is pretty easy. I like to play this little game, this little guessing game with my family. I think everybody in my family hates it, but nobody hates it more than Kelly. Everyone in my family, now, just as an example, everyone in my family knows that I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. And so I'll take a song like All Along the Watchtower that I know Dylan wrote, but I'll play the Jimi Hendrix version or the Johnny Cash version of the song, and I'll say... I bet you can't tell me who wrote that song. Kelly will say, not this again. I don't know, Paul McCartney. Me? Nope. I hate it when you do this. Just tell me who. But that takes all the fun out of my game. Whatever. Oh, come on, guess, please. You're going to hate yourself when I tell you who it is. Nope, I ain't doing this. Just tell me. This is so tiring, Andy. Bob Dylan. I should have guessed. See, I told you, you would hate yourself for not guessing. Now, I bet you can't tell me what historical event that song was about. Poor Kelly. Having to put up with such a silly, demanding game bully as me. But Jesus is not a demanding bully. He's fulfilled in Trinitarian love. And so he's calm. He's calm on the outside toward us. And he's patient on the inside in regard to himself. Of course, he's working mysteriously in such a way that doesn't violate our freedom. We make choices, but he's getting to the ends that he wants. But not in this demanding, goading kind of way. Now, how do we know he's truly patient? Well, the last part of verse uh, 16 tells us we received. We received. You see, he works with us, not against us. On your scripture page, Jesus illustrates this verbally in John 16, 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. How masterful 
he is in his teaching, in his love, in his gentleness with his people. So what do we receive? Well, he's been showing it all along. The end of verse 16. We received from Christmas, from him, we received grace. But not just any grace, more grace, grace upon grace, undeserved favor, smile of God upon you as his adopted sons and daughters. That's what we received. Now, how do we know that what that grace upon grace is? That grace upon grace is what we hold out our empty hands to receive. He is full. We are empty. And that's because he is God and we are sinful. By his giving, giving grace, he gives us of his fullness as God. He gives us this grace because he is the fulfillment. Now, I don't mean personal fulfillment for us. I mean, quite literally, he fulfills all that the Old Testament said about it. Look at what it says in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So there are two gifts. Notice it was given. There's a law gift, and Moses is that gift giver. And there's a gospel gift, and Jesus is that gift giver. The gods of the ancient Near East, the gods, quote unquote, with a small g, did not reveal their desires, their will. So people had to sort of figure out rituals to appease them so that the wheat harvest would work out well. So that mother would not die. And if that happened, they would have to go back and rethink, what did I do wrong? And God tells us very plainly, very clearly, the law was given because that's what we were designed to be. We are image bearers of him. The law is a reflection of his character and we are supposed to bear that same character. So why is the law a gift? Well, because it shows us who we really are and that's bad news. We are sinners who deserve and will only get punished for our sins. But that's grace. That's favor. If you get to see it for yourself and read yourself that way. To read yourself truly writ large as a sinner is grace. Why? Because if you're one of his, you know where to go. You run to Jesus for mercy. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Now Moses is a type of Christ. He's the priest of the people and he's the prophet. As he leads them, he sort of represents a king as well. But he's the prophet who brings the bad news. He's sort of like an appetizer. It's good, but there's a letdown. You're not satisfied. The law leaves us like that. We can't keep it. Not in our natural state. And even as we grow as Christians, we are to engage in law keeping. 
We're still not all the way there. So appetizers create a longing for the meal. Grace upon grace, that's what this means. The grace of the law and then the grace of the gospel on top of the law. Now that you see your true condition, here's the remedy. The real meal, which is the appetizer writ large. The gospel gift of which Jesus is the gift giver. You know, it's one kind of grace to know the truth that you are a lawbreaker and deserve to be punished. And it's another kind of grace to know that in his life on earth as a man, he did what you absolutely cannot do. Grace upon grace, he kept the law in your place. But wait, there's more. Grace. Then he died for your law breaking. But wait, there's even more. Grace. Then he rose to life because in him was life and that life was the light of men. And by that, he conquered all his and our enemies. It was D-Day on the cross and resurrection. It turned the whole war around. The outcome is now secure fully, even though the battles are not totally done. Grace upon grace and truth in Jesus. Greater grace, the law reveals your sin. Greater grace, gospel says, Jesus took care of it all. Is it too good to be true? Is it too good to be true? Sounds like it. But Jesus never changes. Look at Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He conquers our hearts because he makes ourselves known to ourselves in truth so that we will run to him for mercy. And he's uniquely qualified to do this because he comes from the eternal society of the Trinity. And guess what? He's giving away the benefit of this unique knowledge of his for free. The word owns us by clearly showing his glory that only we as his own can see. How does the word conquer the darkness of our hearts so that we may see it? It does this by his hidden grace, which is there because of his giving grace in which he gives us the fellowship of the Trinity. But how would we ever know it unless we deal with the problem that's brought up in verse 18? That he conquers the darkness by shedding his light on his teaching grace. The problem is we can't see God. And that's doubly certain, not only because we're finite and he is infinite, but because we're sinful and he is holy. We cannot naturally attain to this knowledge. It must be revealed, even in the garden. As, as God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. What's the solution to this problem? We need someone who's close to God and close to us. And that's the quality of his person. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. God at the side of God. And the quality of his work. He has made him known. This word known has its root in the Greek word 
for what we call exegesis, which is a very technical term. We use it a lot with Bible and seminary. It means to pull out of the word, to dig out of the word what is really there. And as a preacher, that's what I want to do. I don't want to read into the word and make it say what I want it to say. I want the word to shape me and to shape y'all. Exegesis. He exegetes the Father for us. And he's in a unique position to do that. Even he said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's like a telescope. And what does he show us about the Father? His eternal love for his children. That he would take this blameless one, this spotless one, and put him to death for us. So, in conclusion, you know, it's said that as we get older, we get wiser. Is it really true? In some senses, I suppose. But while we still live in this present evil age, on our way to the promised land, with the one who is the word tabernacled among us, it would be wise to humble ourselves and to consider ourselves fools still. Maybe some wise observations regarding human foolishness might be in order. Another thing I found on the internet. While most people are getting older and wiser, I'm just getting better at making up stuff as I go along. I think that's more true of me than I could ever know. And I don't know if it was a believer or an unbeliever that said this, but you have to admit there's grounding in reality for it. Why else do we come to church Sunday after Sunday? I sure hope it's not because we have it all together or have it all figured out or even worse, we want to look good to society around us and say, we're good, upstanding Christians and solid citizens. I hope that's not your motivation. We come here because Sabbath rest after Sabbath rest, we need to be fed. Church is an essential service. Spiritual food, people. Spiritual food is life to our emptied out souls that get emptied out during the week. That's why God mandates this. And seeing others around you, actually seeing them in a way that no video can never do for you. Actually, look around. You're not the only fool in this room. Isn't that nice to know? We're all in this together. We need this reinforcement. It's an essential service. Don't ever forget that. In fact, I will say to you, the church is more essential for society than any other institution on earth, apart from the family, but those are connected. If you want to talk with me about it, I'd be more than happy to. And I can tell you from history, I can point to things in history of where the church has fallen off and there's a direct result. I've told you about one already when we gave up on the interpretation of Genesis 1 and sent liberal theologians to China, right around the time when people like Mao Zedong were being educated there in evangelical schools. And we're dealing with the consequences today. Don't tell me the church isn't essential for society. It is. It is the most essential. Because there is no other place you can go to get what you get here. I'm not talking about just me. I'm talking about the true church, wherever Christian, true Christians are. 
It's the only way to grow as real human beings. We need someone to turn the light on for us because our eyesight's not that good and it's getting worse. And we don't know very much. And what if that someone not only turned on the light for us, but is the light himself who uses his power not to gain power to himself, but to give something of eternal value to us, knowing the Father and his eternal love for his children. Wouldn't that feel like life itself? Wouldn't that be like he's the word coming to us in the flesh, pouring himself into us? Pouring out that life in him was life and that life was the light of men. And wouldn't he have conquered any vestige of resistance in your soul? And wouldn't he, Jesus, own you? And wouldn't you be so happy for it? Merry Christmas, everyone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son. And thank you that by him, who is the king and the head of the church, that we have each other. We have your spirit living in us. We have all that we need. We pray for those who by conscience cannot come and who by, um, by vulnerability are wise not to expose themselves to this dreaded disease. But as we can, Father, we ask that you would help us to see that this is not something we should slough off. Please help us to see, Father, that we need you and the only institution that really provides this is the church. Strengthen your people. Bring revival to my heart, to every heart in this room, to the hearts of all the Christians in this town, in this county, in this state, in this nation, wherever your missionaries are spreading the word throughout the world. Please help us to see the true meaning of the word made flesh dwelling among us and taking upon himself in grace to live righteously in our place where we could not live and to die the death we would never want to die and to do what we could never do, rise again from the dead. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Please turn in your hymnals.